0: So many of the Buddhist teachings are really designed to help us better understand the experience we're having right now. And uh, in a way, especially when we get into some more of the particular teachings about the mind that can feel, unless you're a Dharma nerd, can feel a little like too much or what am I supposed to do with this information? So the idea is that it's these maps are they're conceptual maps and they're here to help a human being better understand the mind instead of being confused by the activity of the mind and body. And in a way, these Dharma concepts, like the teachings of the Buddha or other wise people these concepts, these maps are in a way a defense or an intervention to keep the mind from seeing things or probably better to say, to keep the mind from misperceiving experience and the ways that it always misperceives experience. So the, the map, the teachings like tonight on the five aggregates continuing the talk I gave a couple nights ago, looking more specifically at each of the five the body as the five physical senses, feeling as an aspect of the mind, perception as an aspect of the mind, what's called mental formations, in particular, as Kamala talked about this morning, intention, how the mind organizes itself, organizes that volitional energy and acts. It thinks, it speaks, it does, that aspect of the mind, and then consciousness. So as we look at how the Buddha maps out these five aspects of our reality, our experience, this mind-body experience. The idea isn't to have a comfortable concept that, okay, now I've got the truth, now I understand, and now I can tell my friends what's true, (laughs) because I've got this nice map. But it's really about... um, skillfully using the map to see what we haven't seen yet to open some to challenge some of the existing habits of the mind how it constructs experience <coughs> excuse me and then how it suffers but because of the way that it constructs, constructs experience so i mentioned the image of the mind and body as fuel And with this fuel, the different aspects of the mind and body as different kinds of fuel, and with this fuel, there are the fires of greed, anger, and delusion. Or another way in the Dhammapada where the Buddha says, or from the tradition, there's no fire like lust, no grip like hate, there is no net like delusion, and there's no river like craving craving. one When we crave, the tendency is to want to continue to crave. It's sort of built in to the experience. And to have some humility that we don't know well what mind-body is, the activity of the mind-body is, without the different structures and um, feeling tone and activities that we call craving. You know, we, we do know what this looks like, feels like. We do know what it's like to be a human being when there's craving, when there are the fires of greed, anger, and delusion, right? Because that's our ordinary experience. But the reason why we need this map is because we're honest, we're humble, we realize we don't know what this would be without that structuring due to greed, anger, and delusion, due to craving, the river of craving. What would it be to be a sensitive being without craving? You know, the Buddha has given many images over the years. You know, one um, is like a stream flowing down a river, or water, let's say, coming down a mountain. And uh, just the natural intelligence of that water to find its way, it might end up in a lake for a while, but little by little it makes its way down. So, I mean, I know we're not the same as water falling on the side of a mountain, but there's something, or we, you know, poets use leaves blowing off of a tree and finding the way to the ground. So the, the, there are these images of how activities happen in nature. Sometimes really big activities, big things happen like it goes from being summer to fall or from fall to winter. I mean, there's a lot involved in going from fall to winter, lots of big changes, but there isn't anybody stressed out Right? There's nothing necessarily in nature that's stressed out by all that very complex interdependent activity. One of the ways the Buddha used the five aggregates uh, as, you know, as a way, as I mentioned, to shift our view by deconstructing so that we're not just doing what the mind is in constructing experience in the way that it always does. So we will use the mind to deconstruct experience and basically to poke holes in the u- usual suspects, the usual constructions that our mind has. And the image the Buddha used, he said, just as with the assemblage of parts, the word chariot is used. So when the aggregates exist, there's the convention being, right? So we don't have chariots, but we have cars. And so when all those parts are there, we say, yep, yeah, that's a car. But if we had spread the parts out, you know, and they were broken down enough, you wouldn't think car. I mean, if it was like a big piece, like the whole frame, you'd think, that used to be a car, (laughs) you know. But when you put it all together, then we have car. And we forget about the pieces that that needed to come together to make it a car. And if those pieces weren't there, it's not really a car. So we get confused by this convention and Many of you have heard Joseph Goldstein's very famous teaching on this where he points out when we look out in the sky in the right place on a clear night, it's really hard for us not to see the Big Dipper. I mean, I've tried this after hearing Joseph's talk many times where he uses that, that uh, as an example of the uh, pattern of, it's really, we're talking about perception in part, and other aspects of how the mind constructs experience through mental formations, including feeling tone, all of which then consciousness illuminates. And we look up and we go, that's the Big Dipper. Or maybe you're a star buff and you can see lots of constellations. But it's hard not to see it. Just like it's really hard for me to look at Kamala and not think Kamala or anybody else that I recognize. It's hard to go back into the simplicity of the experience of just seeing, or just hearing, or just sensing sensation, or just noticing that thoughts are just thoughts. And so it's really limited because some of, I mean, Big Dipper is not a very toxic concept, <laughs> but, but it's emblematic of some concepts that have a lot of baggage like me, (laughs) right? The concept of being apart, being here, having to deal with life. That's a very powerful concept and there's definitely some implications with that concept as we feel, we sense directly. So I like to use the word appearance, you know, that when we have an, an experience, it sort of softens or loosens the mind's, uh, you know, just its reflexive attachment to whatever construction it's just constructed, whatever meaning you're bringing to the moment right now. You know, to say to yourself, well, this is the appearance of Mark giving a talk on Friday night at Cloud Mountain. I mean, there are so many concepts in that. So we have the activity of the mind and body, but we've sort of wrapped it up in a very convenient way. Mark's giving a talk at Cloud Mountain on Friday night. So it has the appearance. This looks like that, right? So we're kind of being more clear about what perception is and what mental formations are, and what consciousness illuminates, and the feeling tone that kind of gives it, feeling tone gives experience like some substance, like this is meaningful to me, you know why? Because it feels like something. It's pleasant, or it's unpleasant, or I don't really care about it because it's neutral. So the feeling tone, you see how seductive it can be when these things come together And when when our mind is able to step beyond or see through or not be caught in this net, I mean, this is really a good definition of delusion, this net, this um, deep habit of being confused by the mind's constructions. Thinking that what we, thinking... uh, that what the mind is constructed is more than a mental construction, thinking that it's the truth or real or more than what it actually is. And then we, we get more and more dependent, like if, if our mind has the thought, here I'm, I'm on retreat at Cloud Mountain, we're getting near the end of the retreat, it's Friday night, couple more days, Mark's giving a talk. And to the degree that that the mind takes that construction to be more than what it is, then the mind tends to ignore present moment experience because it has something that seems stable and dependable and real and it will hold to that. The meaning, the mental construction seems to give, the appearance. And in the uh, mind, the awareness is no longer that interested in opening to the movement of sensation, of thought, of sound, coming and going. I thought of a simile that might help just understand this. I call it the simile of the screen. But uh, I'm not sure where I first picked this up, but you know, you can imagine uh, somebody growing up in a family with doors and windows in their home, being in the house, and uh, in this family they're, you know, they really appreciate their screens. And uh, some screens are newer, some are older, some have little bugs smashed in them. Some, you know, you've seen screens where people have painted around and the paint gets on the screen and sort of fills it up a little bit and so each screen is a little bit different and maybe some are made out of nylon or some are made out of metal. And, and, but everyone in the family knows the screens and appreciates them. And then someday, you know, somebody gives the family some pointing out instructions like relax, relax your gaze, you know. Don't get obsessed, don't get fixed on the idea screen, you know, because that's just an idea. See if you can be with the visual experience as it actually is, right? So no longer fixated, the mind no longer fixated on the concept screen, you know, we might learn something like that you can see the backyard. Because as long as the concept screen has dominated the mind, that that's what that is, that's what we see. We don't see beyond that. But now, often you and I, when we look at a window with a screen, right, we don't see the screen. We could turn this around, you know, like the family totally into seeing out the window, the trees, the backyard, the front yard, the side yard, the street, the whatever. You know, and then somebody giving and pointing out instructions about, you know, soften your gaze, don't be confused by the concept of my backyard, and you might discover something new that you've never seen before. And then lo and behold, we'd have that tremendous insight, oh, there's a screen there. I've never noticed the screen because I've just paid attention to the backyard or to the side yard or the street or the front yard. And this is, an example. this is happening all the time. I had this experience uh, when I was pretty young. I can't remember exactly how old, but I think around seven. And, uh, and then I would repeat it uh, when I would take a bath. So I was relaxed, and I grew up in a family of seven kids, so I was right in the middle. It was probably, for me, a, a relatively peaceful time, just like being in the bathroom alone and sitting in the comfortable bathtub. And I, I just started to notice something that my mind as a kid didn't understand. It was just like I was sitting there relaxing, and then there would be like a shift. And it felt like a visual shift, but you know, in hindsight, I'm not sure it actually was. But it was just now, in hindsight, thinking back, because it, it really stood out. And I did it, you know, for a while, I was like fascinated by this like because I didn't understand what was happening and but but it felt like that it was a real nothing changed like the visual what I was looking at, I was just looking at the you know the side of the bathtub going up you know whatever that was back then tile or whatever it was and you know I was watching it and I because I got to sort of figure out like you just stare and you relax and then there was a shift and uh But it was just a little bit of the mind initially being... I mean, this is my hindsight interpretation. um, Like, in the idea that I'm I'm in the bathtub looking (laughs) at the side of the bathtub. And then things would relax. And the mind would no longer be attached to any idea. And there'd be just a simple moment of awareness. Right? Things as they are. So... A mind less entangled with any concept, just seeing being known, and that was a di- that's a different mind than the previous mind, and somehow my mind was picking up that discontinuity between the mind that was somewhat diluted or caught identified with the concept, and then the next mind, you know, when the shift happens, which is a mind not seeing being being a sensitive creature not tied in that net, not confused by the concept. It was just a subtle shift. But, you know, it was sort of really interesting how our relationship to the mind and body, it's like we, we want to have a sense. It doesn't matter sort of the external conditions like where we are, if we're on retreat or at home. We want that kind of humility that there's a, the world of dharma, the world of dharma is here to be discovered. And it really is just a matter of the supporting conditions coming into balance where the mind, you know, the right information and reflecting on the right information enough that you have some confidence and you sort of know what to do with your mind, what to trust. And beginning to realize that we don't always have to see the Big Dipper when we look at the sky. We don't always have to have the same kind of framing when we meet a good friend. Right? We, there can be a certain aliveness and freshness in how we move through life. We don't have to be trapped. So let me go through the five. Five spend a little time with each one. We talked about the body quite a bit earlier in the retreat, so I won't spend too much time, but for each one I want to read uh, the sutta that refers to each of these five aggregates. So form, uh, the Pali word is rupa. Form is another word for body, but body in the sense of the sensitivity of the five physical senses of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching. And the Buddha says, on one occasion, the Blessed One was staying on the banks of the Ganges River. There he addressed the monks. Practitioners, suppose that a large glob of foam were floating down the Ganges River and a person with good eyesight were to see it, observe it, and appropriately examine it. Seeing it, observing it, appropriately examining it, it would appear empty, void, without substance for what substance would there be in a glob of foam, right? So we all have seen this on a lake shore or river bank, right? Just the foam that sometimes is there. And he goes on, he says, in the same way a practitioner sees, observes, and appropriately examines any form that is past, future, or present, internal or external, blatant or subtle, common or sublime, far or near, To one, seeing it, observing it, appropriately examining it, it would appear empty, void, without substance. For what substance would there be in a form? So let's just test out what the Buddha said. Just put your hand out in a comfortable way so it's not touching anything right now. You can close your eyes because sometimes, not sometimes, a lot of the time, the visual form sort of is part of the seduction. So close your eyes and just be aware of hand. Not the thought hand or the mental image hand, but the direct experience of sensation here in the hand. And then remember that the Buddha is using the simile of foam, the basic insubstantiality of foam as a metaphor for form, which includes touch or sensation, sight, sound, smell, taste, and just sense if this simile is accurate in your direct experience. Is the experience of hand as a direct experience of sensation Does it seem to lack substance? And uh, you can open your eyes, and if you want, put your hand down. And, uh, you know, this is one of the things that to survive a nine-day retreat, you know, one of the things, I mean, we need to learn many skills, perseverance and good sense of humor and a lot of forgiveness. And then another real skill we need is to be able to be with pain and not just like tolerate the pain, which we have to do to some degree. But another way we work with pain is we radically open to it and we realize that it isn't this huge edifice that it initially appeared to be. I mean, some pains we don't seem to be able to do that with, or not yet, but I think it's pretty common. I would imagine many of you have had moments of success where the pain, it was probably, by the way, you know, given what I'm talking about tonight, tonight the idea, right? All of the, all of the coming together, this construction of the mind, that we call, my body hurts, my knee is throbbing, oh, I got that wiry feeling in my limbs again, or, you know, that heavier-than-lead sleepiness again, or that, you know, wild restlessness again. So it can feel, the idea of what's happening to me can be huge. And then if we persist and we use the skills that we've been gaining to deconstruct and to see sensations and to see that these sensations are coming and going. It's just something being known. It's just, and even the aversion is just something being known. And we keep at that. The edifice, if it doesn't fall away completely, it just becomes at least semi-transparent. Doesn't look quite as substantial or real as maybe it did initially, or it does when we sort of lose the balance of awareness and we're in a more have a more reactive stance and more identified, more attached, more hating it and wanting to just be done. And we talked about this um, in terms of the elements on uh, I guess it was Monday night, uh, that just seeing the body, like in terms of sensation, as things like hardness, softness, smoothness, roughness, warmth, coolness, a sense of cohesion, sense of movement, stillness. There's really nothing hand when we're feeling things on that level. And whatever those aspects we're tuning into, like hardness or softness or smoothness or roughness, whatever you're turning into, it's not a set thing. It's not the idea my hand is hard or my hand is heavy or my hand is light. It's the actual experience. And as an experience, it's a changing process. And the thing about a process as opposed to a thing, right? I mean, just intellectually, a process never becomes a thing because it's always on to the next expression of the process. right? So in a way, you see, at least intellectually, that a process is kind of empty of being a solid, permanent thing because it's always changing. Always become, and in order for it to change, it has to disappear for the next expression of it to arise and be. And then that has to go away. So anything that's a process is involved and you know, has this underlying nature of being insubstantial And that's what we find when we look with awareness at the body, at sound, at sight, at taste and smell, and then any aspect of the mind. We see what we find is a changing process, always becoming something else in a lawful, conditional way. And it's only our constructions that give things the appearance of being solid, permanent. And this is all, you know, this really goes to the heart of what the Buddha was after when he taught the five aggregates to help us see the impermanent, unsatisfactory and impersonal nature of the activity of the mind and body. And I, I'm really training myself not to say mind and body, but to always say the activity of the mind and body. Because everything that we know everything we experience is an activity, it's a changing process. One thing, a clever way I think that Joseph Goldstein uses, um, in terms of seeing, experiencing the body in this more direct way, he says, uh, in terms of walking practice, sensations in space. But you can have that feeling sometimes, that experience sometimes when you're doing walking practice. Like even the idea that I weigh this amount, you know, it's like that doesn't line up with your experience. Or I'm walking, like Kamala gave, I thought, a really useful talk on intention this morning. And, uh, you know, when you observe intention, like she was suggesting, you can feel sometimes like that there's intention and stepping and tension and stepping. And it's like, like it's happening on its own. The intention's there and then the stepping and, and you realize that the idea that I'm walking from A to B and then stopping and then turning and walking from B to A, that's like a totally unnecessary concept. And there's just intention and movement and intention and movement and intention and movement. And it's sort of like a trippy experience. Some of you probably have had it. It's not that uncommon when the mind is in balance, the awareness is in balance, and the mind is curious, maybe because a teacher mentioned it, or maybe just on your own got in- interested in intention, which is the big part of mental formations, one of the five aggregates. So now we're on to feeling. Now suppose that in autumn, this is from the sutta. Now suppose that in autumn, when it's raining fat in fat heavy drops, a water bubble were to appear and disappear on the water. And a person with good eyesight were to see it, observe it and appropriately examine it, right? So you see, we have to be interested, have that discerning quality, that stability of awareness that allows the mind to understand, to see clearly. To one, seeing it, observing it, appropriately examining it, it would appear empty, void, and without substance. For what substance would there be in a water bubble? In the same way, a practitioner sees, observes, and appropriately examines any feeling that is past, future, or present, internal or external, blatant or subtle, common or sublime, far or near, to one seeing it, observing it and appropriately examining it, it would appear empty, void, and without substance. For what substance would there be in a feeling? Now this is very provocative, because I don't know about you, but it seems pretty common that you know, we could pretty much describe our whole life, or just today, as one reaction after another to whatever feeling that we're feeling, including neutral feeling. Like, when we have a lot of neutral feeling, it's like we want to scratch something. We want to do something to have a feeling because it feels like we're missing life when there's a lot of neutrality. There's got to be something dramatic. Something bad is happening, I'm sure. Or something good, maybe. So, and it's so interesting, like, uh, it's easier to see in other people. So sometimes like, just sit in the corner of the dining hall or, you know, the back of the meditation hall, and you're just observing the general movement, and you'll just see that most actions that are observable, you can interpret as some mind responding to a feeling. You know, all the little movements, somebody feels something and they move. A fly lands, it's not the fly on your skin, it's the feeling tone that arises with that experience of sensation, and then it's not even the sensation, it's then the interpretation. That's a fly, you know? And it's definitely not supposed to be on my skin, right? And then there's a feeling tone that goes with that perception. That's a fly, right? The perception is naming it, recognizing the experience because of the past, because of past conditioning, you can recognize that's a fly, either because you see it or you recognize the touch. And then there's movement. And same with pleasant. You know, when something's really pleasant, you can see people, you know, like if you in the dining hall, like how they relate to pleasant experience, how they relate to unpleasant experience. Watch people when they move at the end of a sit, you know, and then how nice that feels or how nice that hurts. <laughs> That's a better way to say it. Imagine then what the Buddha suggesting. You know, with the image of a water bottle, and maybe you have pleasant feeling or an unpleasant feeling right now, but it's really useful to kind of hold the feeling, frame the feeling as a bubble, a very ephemeral thing. It does have a shape, it does have a reality, but it's a really tenuous reality. And we've seen this with feeling like how quickly it can change, how something unpleasant can be pleasant and something pleasant can become unpleasant. And it's interesting how we don't, like if you're eating a lot of ice cream, you know, and at some point it becomes unpleasant, but the mind doesn't want it to be unpleasant. Or something was really unpleasant, but it changes. And have you caught yourself like looking, where is that unpleasant feeling? Mm-hmm. But it's not there anymore. Even in a sit, like when the mind is pretty balanced, it's like, like it's, it can be interesting where you have a lot of pain and you're like trying to be a good yogi and you're really with it, you're really with it. And then sometimes the mind gets exhausted. And because there's a little exhaustion, the mind's susceptible to distraction. So you might just get lost in thought. Something completely unrelated to the pain. And then all of a sudden, there's a moment of mindfulness. You realize you've been lost in thought. And then you remember that you were dealing with a lot of pain. And you look with this expectation, where is it? And it may be gone. Because it may not have even been the physical pain as much as the mental resistance to it. So I just point this out as kind of a a little bit of a sense of how much we're living in the constructions of the mind and how rarely we visit and sustain in this world we call Dharma or Dhamma, right? Things as they are. Doesn't mean there aren't thoughts, it means so the experience isn't distorted or mediated or confused by the thoughts, right? So the thinking mind is probably going to keep thinking almost all the time. I mean, there are moments when it quiets down, for sure. But those moments tend to be, you know, in uh, particular meditation periods where the mind really settles into a more uh, profound stillness. But other than those moments, there's going to be thinking. So if we're expecting, imagining that awakening comes, more and more freedom comes in our life, because there's no thinking... We might have the wrong idea about awakening, right? It may be more uh, not misunderstanding thought, not assuming that thought is more than what it is. And this is in particular around feeling tone, like taking a fresh look at feeling. It's not easy for us to open to a pleasant feeling or an unpleasant feeling without the mental interpretation wanting to insert itself. But we can train ourselves to be interested, oh, it's just unpleasantness being known. It's just pleasantness being known. It's just this neutral feeling being known. Mm -hmm. And to track it, and you see how it is a little bit like a bubble. You know, it's like, what is, this is just an interesting Dharma question. What is pain, whether it's emotional pain or physical pain, what is the experience of pain when it's being met with balanced awareness, with wisdom? What is that experience? I mean, it's sort of like, you know, I have some pretty distinct uh, place of pain, aching, pressure pain, I don't near my knee now just because of how I'm sitting. And uh, But when I bring my attention to it, we see so much how the The quality of the mind has a lot to do with the appearance of the experience. Which really teaches us something important. You know, given that we have a mind and body, we could spend our whole existence wanting a different mind and body. Right? Which is stressful. Or we could spend our existence learning what is the right way to be relating to the experiences, the activities of the mind and body. And this is the, you know, really in the essence of the, the Dharma. Like, which of those two things are we doing? Joseph Goldstein always makes the point, and he said it really helped him in his practice, that to help stabilize awareness with feel, feeling, Realize that there's no feeling without contact. So if you're having an unpleasant feeling, then just notice there's a contact. You know, the mind is seeing something, hearing something, thinking something, having some tactile experience. And then there's the unpleasantness that's associated with that sense contact. And it just sort of stabilizes it. Like, oh yeah, this mental image and that yucky feeling, or this memory, you know, which is like a mental image or a thought, and then that yucky feeling, or this twisting, and then the unpleasantness. But the twisting is one thing, or the burning or the aching, the hardness, the softness, the smoothness, the roughness, the heat, the cold. That's one thing, and the unpleasantness, although very related to the sensation, is different. It's like, it's part of that mental interpretation, I don't like this, this is unpleasant, right? So it's, that's why we can have different feeling tones. We could have the same visual experience, for example, but we'd have different feeling tones. A, a, A dog could wander into the Dharma hall right now, and some people who've been traumatized by a dog when they were little, you know, would have one feeling would arise, unpleasant, and a lot of you who have had positive experience with dogs, you'd have a different feeling tone in your mind arising, right? Same dog, same for the most part, same visual experience for folks, but all kinds of different mental formations, different perceptions, different feeling, and then different actions of thought, of word, of body. And of course, you don't have to like, you know, at any one time, you might just take one of these five aggregates, the physical senses, the feeling tone, now we're moving on to perception, right? So here's what the Buddha says about perception. Now suppose that in the last month of the hot season, a mirage were shimmering and a person with good eyesight were to see it, observe it, appropriately examine it, to one seeing it, observing it, appropriately examining it, it would appear to be empty, void, without substance. For what substance would there be in a mirage? In the same way a practitioner sees, observes, and appropriately examines any perception that is past or future, present, internal, external, blatant or subtle, common or sublime, far or near." to one seeing it, observing it, and appropriately examining it, it would appear empty, void, without substance. For what substance would there be in a perception? So let's use a a more pleasant, wholesome example. You know, you had a a really good sit. Or you had what felt like a a really powerful insight. You know, like what I mentioned around physical discomfort, and just being intimate with the sensations, with things as they are, and the resistance, the mental resistance evaporated and it was still sensations being known, but there was nobody having a problem, right? And then after the set, the perception arises, this practice works, you know? I'm finally getting good at this practice. So, image the image that, like that mirage, right? Because it really seems that perception of that label, like good yogi, good meditator. In the same way, probably more often, bad meditator, bad yogi, distracted yogi, you know, yogi with no faith, or whatever. And that perception but it is a bit like a mirage and it's just so interesting if we, you know, this is a neat thing about time-lapse photography you can really see like, can you imagine if there was somebody, a really good editor and, and videographer that just in a sneaky way just has been following us along, just this retreat all the highs and lows right, and then made us watch it and we would just see like the different ways we were conceiving of self, the different perceptions we had about ourselves, or the different perceptions we have about our partner, or about our world back home, or about politics, and just all the different iterations. Each one in the moment when the mind is somewhat diluted seems like the truth, seems like the truth, but it's clearly, it's fluid. All we have to do is observe our own mind. This sort of discontinuity in how we construct the world should be the real giveaway to how uh, we're living mostly within the constructions of our mind. So, of course, there's much to say about perception. I've been talking about it off and on for the last uh, couple of talks. But I thought it'd be fun to to read um, a passage from Bhante Gunaratana's book, Mindfulness in Plain English. He's uh, one of our senior teachers in this tradition, a real elder now, a a Theravada monk from Sri Lanka, but who's been teaching in the United States for many decades and started the Bhavana Society in West Virginia. And this is a real classic book, uh, Mindfulness in Plain English. So here's what he says about perception. Our human perceptual habits are remarkably stupid in some ways. We tune out 99% of all the sensory stimuli we actually receive and we solidify the the remainder into discrete mental objects. Then we react to those mental objects in programmed habitual ways. An example, there you are sitting alone in the stillness of a peaceful night. A dog barks in the distance. Which in itself is neither good nor bad. Up and out of that sea of silence come surging waves of sonic vibration. You start to hear the lovely complex patterns and they are turned into scintillating electronic stimulations within the nervous system. The process should be used as an experience of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and selflessness. We humans tend to ignore it totally. Instead, We solidify that perception into a mental object. So that's perception, mental formations, like the intention to think about it, to judge it. We paste a mental picture on it and we launch into a series of emotional and conceptual reactions to it. There's that dog again. He is always barking at night. What a nuisance. Every night he's a real bother. Somebody should do something. Maybe I should call a cop. No, a dog catcher. I'll call the pound. No, maybe I'll just write a nasty letter to the guy. (laughs) No, too much trouble. I'll just get (laughs) earplugs. These are just perceptual and mental habits. You learn to respond this way as a child by copying the perceptual habits of those around you. These perceptual responses are not inherent in the structure of the nervous system. The circuits are there. But this is not the only way that our mental machinery can be used. That which has been learned can be unlearned. The first step is to realize that, to realize what you are doing as you're doing it, to stand back and quietly watch. And just an example of these perceptual habits being learned, I remember this is another story from way back when. I might have been just five at this time. And we had recently moved into our new home. And uh, partly because we had a lot of kids and just, I think, culturally, you know, uh, we always had, like, you're not allowed in the living room. And uh, because we needed to go through the living room to get upstairs where all the bedrooms were, um, we had plastic runners going through the (laughs) living room so we wouldn't wear out the carpet. And all the pieces of furniture were covered in, you know, cloths so that, but we weren't allowed to sit on the (laughs) living room furniture anyway, but, it kept the dust off, I guess. We were pretty well trained, but anyway, one like Saturday morning when my dad was around, I remember my mom and dad in the living room looking at a piece of furniture, and they were both raised in the Depression, you know. So it's like they were, and we we didn't have a lot of money. I mean, we weren't poor, but um, but there was a scratch on one of the pieces of the furniture, and they were clearly upset looking at it. And, you know, following the perceptual habits I've learned, I just said, damn. <laughs> I was like, and no one swore in our family, except every once in a while my parents would when they were angry. So I just like picked up all the cues. It's like, I know, to, I know how to construct meaning here. <laughs> and they were so shocked.
1: <laughs> I mean, I was
0: a pretty good kid. So... And they were good parents, so they didn't, you know, they just needed to look at me like, what the heck? <laughs> and I, you know, and I picked up that cue, you know, and I, I learned, oh, yeah, you get to say that when you're angry, but I don't get to say that. <laughs> but it's it's just that the reason I share that story is, uh, you know, as kids, we're really interested in picking up perceptual habits, like... We're taking cues like, is this a good thing that's happening, or is this a bad thing that's happening? And we look to our parents and other older siblings like, how am I supposed to be constructing reality right now? <laughs> you know, and it's like, uh, it's interesting sometimes. I've been around because I, I worked in the schools back in the eighties, and uh, and it's really interesting when I'm having a conversation or I'm interacting with parents. And like they're having a hard time and the kid it's like they really like they really attuned to the parents if they're losing their equilibrium for whatever reason because it's like they're taking their cues for them and if mom is upset or if dad is upset that's not good because of course most parents hide that from their kids you know it's like I don't show my kid that I'm upset So, and of course, we're still doing that. When we walk into a room, part of what we're doing is like we're coming into this morphic field of like how we're perceiving, how we're agreeing unconsciously in an unspoken way to construct meaning, you know, and we're looking for people that we can construct similar meaning so then we can relate to each other because we have the shared perceptions that we can talk about. Earlier tonight, Kamala, or today, Kamala and I were talking about Ram Das, who lives on Maui as well, and we were just sharing some stories. But it was like that, that bridge, you know, that Kamala has this relationship. I have this relationship through his books, mostly. Uh, if you don't know, he's just uh, one of the early sort of people bringing Eastern teachings to the West back in the 60s, among other things. Kind of a beloved person in our bigger meditation community here in the West. And, uh, but it's just that sort of shared meaning, shared perceptions that we can kind of connect with. And this is the thing, a lot of these mental constructions, there's a real purpose. Like as a social creature, we need these, we need to be able to construct meaning together, right? Because that's how we stay together, that's how we, families work, societies work. That it turns out to have all kinds of problems, this constructing shared meaning, is when we begin to take it to be more than what it is. We start to draw conclusions or suffer, basically, in ways that are unfortunate. So we have uh, perception, which is like a mirage, And, you know, there are just so many different perceptions. I mentioned a few already, time, location. Have you ever noticed, like with Google Maps, and then you put the map part where they have the towns and the roads, and it's so familiar to your mind, and then you go to satellite, and it's like, I don't recognize this place, right? And unless you go far enough back, and you see the shape of the United States, and you realize, oh, yeah, I recognize that shape. But when you're just sort of in more of the land, you don't really recognize a lot. But then you go back to the concept, names of town, borders, interstates, and then it's like very familiar. And this is just another example of how perception works. I mentioned already about the uh, Big Dipper, you know, as an example of that. So we have bodily, the body rather, form. We have feeling, we have perception, we have mental formations. We've been talking a lot about mental formations. The important part of mental formations is especially intention. So in any moment of experience, right, there's going to be sensitivity to the five physical senses. Some of that will be more in the forefront. Some of it will be less in the forefront. There will be a feeling, a feeling tone associated with contact, whatever the contact is, whether it's contact with a thought or contact with a sight or a sound. The mind will recognize it, even if it's a brand new experience you've never had before, the mind will recognize, this is a brand new experience, I don't recognize it. That's also a recognition, right? It's new. And then mental formation is sort of a catch-all, but... The important thing about mental formations is it's the part of the mind that does something, right? And it's informed by the past. It's informed by perception and feeling, by contact. It's being illuminated by consciousness. And this is where we can create karma, where we engage in intentional action. We think about it. We obsess about it. We talk about it, we do something, we move the body. We go to the dining hall, we think about a cup of tea or we feel the growling in the belly, right? That's the contact, there's a feeling, a perception. I guess I'm hungry, you know? We think about the fruit under that neat little net or the Mm -hmm. peanut butter in the jar, the bread, the toaster, right? We think, will there be anybody there watching me? <laughs> so all this sort of, these are the mental formations, the about to, you know, is should I wait to the end of the sit? How many times did Kamala mention about waiting to the end of the sit before leaving? Maybe I can, I, I'm sitting pretty close to the, so the, this sort of, <laughs> and eventually, maybe at the end of the sit, you get up, you go, And then that leaves an impression on the mind, right? It kind of cuts a groove, like they say in neurobiology, neurons that fire together wire together, right? So this is happening in this very subtle way that uh, because of contact, because of feeling, because of perception, how we recognize contact, how we name it, label it, and all that that brings up from our latent tendencies And because it seems personal, wrong view, we're going to do something about it. Even restraint comes out of a sense of self, like, I shouldn't do anything about this. This is just craving. But that's wholesome karma when we restrain ourselves appropriately because, you know what, it's not really going to make a big difference. I'm not actually hungry. I'm just restless. Or I just don't like the feeling I'm having. So, That's also a karmic act, but that would be maybe a more skillful karmic act. And so we study mental formations. The Buddha uses a very interesting image. I won't go through all the details because you know the pattern already, but he calls it like a large banana tree. And I don't know if some of you maybe haven't seen one, but he says, you know, a really big banana tree, young, healthy banana tree, tall, and you cut it down, you cut the top off, and you start to peel away peel away the outer bark. And if you don't know, there's nothing inside a banana tree once you start to peel that stuff away. If there's no sapwood or hardwood that you'd find in one of these trees around here in a banana tree. And he says he likens mental formations to that kind of a trunk. It seems like when we're Obsessed like really angry at somebody, and we're stewing all of those mental formations, all of that I'm about to stuff like I need to say this, I need to write that letter, or maybe you're actually on the phone or that seems huge, but when we peel it away, when we deconstruct it, is there a somebody, is there an essentially somebody who's rageful or? whatever you know thing we would expect underneath it all again like the example i gave earlier when we have been in a real (laughs) emotional swirl about something really it felt so huge but then later it's so interesting like well where did that go that was like the biggest thing in the universe and where did it go and then this is where Dharma confidence comes in because if we've seen that enough times, then we can't help but the next time we're in one of those big, heavy swirls, and the perception and the mental formations are saying, This is real, this one's real. It's like the wisdom, there's enough wisdom because that's made an impression on the mind stream too. No, it's not real. It's not what it appears to be. Yeah, there are these thoughts. Yeah there is this bodily contraction that's associated with these thoughts and the identification. There is this dance going on. But it's just something that has the appearance. Right? It has the appearance of being really substantial. And this is the way we can start to relate. It's not about trying to repress thinking or you know, all the intentions that we have. It's really just about having a wise kind, humorous attitude because it is a little bit like a shock, something that seems so substantial, you know. Instead it's like foam, like a bubble, like a mirage, like a substantial tree that turns out not to have any wood in it, not to have any real substance inside of it. And then consciousness, the Buddha likens to a magician's trick, you know. And it's just like if somebody were to really carefully observe and would get, you know, that magician is not pulling a card out of thin air. You know, it was there and it was hidden by his hand or her hand and then pulls it out. Well, it may be clever, you know, the hands may be quick, but it's not magic. However, it appears to be. And this is like consciousness is so interesting because in a way it's the most seductive of, of all things. I was trying to think of a simile, maybe I'll just end this, like I brought this up at the beginning, water falling on the side of a mountain rolling down the stream. Now, one of the things that makes that activity different than the activity of being a human being is we have this reflective mirror-like consciousness and it's like a magician's trick so if somehow that process of water falling on the side of the mountain collecting moving down in streams staying for a while in a lake overflowing the lake if somehow that natural organic process you know because in a way from a certain perspective you could say, you could interpret that, oh, that water's making the choice to go this way around that big trunk, not that way, or, you know, taking the fast route down as opposed to going back uphill, you know, oh. I mean, we could say all kinds. We could personify that activity of the water. And if we were to just put that mirror-like reflective awareness or reflective consciousness so that somehow as the water is doing its thing, there would be a mirror reflecting that the water's doing its thing. It's seductive to have that reflectiveness, right? This part of our mind that can, that sort of knows it's happening, knows that this is being known. And it's very easy once we get the seed planted to assume that there's somebody to whom that knowing, that consciousness refers. But it's just like a mirror, you know something's happening and then there's a mirror, which is also part of the natural process that's just reflecting what's happening. And they're happening in sync, something happens and there's a mirror reflecting it, something happens and there's a mirror reflecting it, something's happened. And somehow in nature, this dance of something happening and a mirror reflecting it arose, we call that a being, right, a human being in this case. And the question is, can we not be confused by that thing we call consciousness, that is just reflecting, reflecting, reflecting in that mirror-like way what touch is arising, what sound is arising, what sight is arising, what thought is arising, what emotion is arising, and it's being known. So in Buddhism, in Theravada Buddhism especially, we're not like highlighting consciousness, that capacity of the mind to reflectively illuminate, oh yeah, this is being known. We're just seeing it as part of nature, another conditional arising that happens. But a particularly seductive one from the point of view of a mind that is in the habit of constructing experience that involves a fixed sense of self. Because it's very convincing element uh, evidence, just like pain and feeling tone is very convincing evidence, like, I know I exist because I'm hurting. This is unpleasant. Oh, I know I exist because I know, you know? I think therefore I am, I am aware. But that's just awareness. That's just consciousness illuminating the activity of the body and mind. We don't need a story to make it more than what it is. And that's the whole point of awareness practice is to let things be what they are. Not to diminish anything. It's not about like imposing this dogma that things are just as they are. No, things are just as they are. <laughs> you know, It's about being intimate. It's about being close to experience. And that's really the heart of the Five Aggregates teaching, is how to be real, how to be intimate, how to live without being confused. We have these amazing thinking minds that can, I mean, really, the creativity of a thinking mind is unbounded. But it's a a problem like that, uh, is it Icarus? Who who flew too close to the sky, right? You know, our cleverness, sort of, we get fooled by our own cleverness, by the capacity of thinking. So here's to letting things be as simple and straightforward as they are. This is really what we mean by, one of the meanings of the word dharma or dhamma is things as they are, mind and body, the activities of the mind and body, just as they are. So let's take a few moments, let go of the words.